0: Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, church. Don't you love Sunday morning? Don't you love... Spring-forward Sunday, hmm, my favorite. (laughs) Amen. Well, I'm glad to see you today. And here we are in the season of Lent. We're about halfway through now. And during the season of Lent, we're asking, what does this mean? We come... And gather around Christ crucified and we ask this question, what does this mean? Well, it means many things. One thing it means is this. It's the beauty that saves the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes on him might not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. A thousand years ago, Prince Vladimir The pagan monarch of Kiev was in search of a religion by which he could unite the disparate tribes in the land of Rus'. And so he made an investigation of the options. They came and they made their reports, those that had gone and searched out what religious options were available. Some reported of religions that were dour and austere. Others had found religions that were esoteric and mysterious. And then the delegation that had gone to Constantinople gave their report. And they said, when the Christians brought us into the place of their worship, a place called Holy Wisdom, Hagia Sophia, We no longer knew if we were on earth or in heaven. We were overwhelmed by the beauty. We forgot many things that they said to us, but we can never forget such beauty. And Prince Vladimir said, that's the religion I want, the religion of beauty. And that's how? Christianity came to Russia a 1,000 years ago. 900 years later, Fyodor Dostoevsky published a book entitled The Idiot. It's about a young man, Prince Mishkin, who was so immune to the conniving aspirations of Russian high society that he appears to the rest of the people to be obtuse and daft. They call him an idiot 45 times in the novel. But Prince Mishkin is no idiot. He's simply someone who has a genuine humility about him. Who genuinely believes in the reality of altruistic love? He's someone who understands that life is not a game, that life is a gift, and that the purpose of life is not to win, but to learn to love well, and this is what he does. And so, though the people in the Russian high society call Prince Mishkin an idiot to one another and even to him when they're in a group, When someone from that high society is alone with Prince Mishkin, they actually are drawn to his warmth, his humility, his genuine compassion. In fact, Prince Mishkin is a Christ figure. This is what Dostoevsky was trying to do. He was trying to create a person as beautiful as Christ. At one point in the novel, uh, Prince Mishkin is at a party where there's a young nihilist named Epilet, atheist, nihilist, and he just enjoys mocking Prince Mishkin. At one point during the party, Epilet says, Is it true, Prince, that you once said beauty will save the world? Gentlemen, the prince insists that beauty will save the world. What beauty will save the world? Are you a zealous Christian? Colas says, you call yourself a Christian. The prince studied him attentively and did not answer. He's like Christ before Pilate. It's just a little throwaway section. I mean, it's, it's a third of a paragraph on page 382. That is, you could just, take it out and it would not affect the structure of the novel, the plot, at all. And yet, from its publication in 1869, that phrase, beauty will save the world, captured the imagination of thinkers, philosophers, theologians around the world. Beauty will save the world. It resonated with people. A hundred years later, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. He has an interesting story. He had been an atheist and then ended up in a gulag where he found faith in Christ. And when he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970, in his Nobel address, he built the whole thing around Dostoevsky's little enigmatic phrase Beauty will save the world. And in it, he said, It's not a riddle. It's a prophecy. Beauty will save the world. The Greek philosophers spoke of the supremacy of the true, the good, and the beautiful. The transcendentals. The true, the good, the beautiful. These are things that we are to desire simply for themselves. They don't have to serve some utilitarian function. They don't have to serve some other purpose. We want the true because it's true. We want the good because it's good. We want the beautiful because it's beautiful. There's no other justification for desiring the true, the good, and the beautiful than it's true, good, and beautiful. Later, the early church fathers would say, yes, yes, These are the supreme aspirations because these are the attributes of God. God is the true. God is the good. God is the beautiful, and it's revealed supremely in Christ. And so, throughout church history, the true and the good, certainly, and sometimes the beautiful, have played an important role in the development of Christian theology. So that we have, for example, Christian apologetics. This is the defense of the truth that we claim in Christ. We claim that Jesus Christ is the truth. Pilate says, what is truth? And we say, Jesus is truth. He's standing right in front of you, Pilate. We claim that Jesus Christ is truth. The defense of that claim is what we call Christian apologetics. Christians also believe that the good can be defined... Through Christ, And so we have the development of Christian ethics. Defining and understanding what is truly good in the light of Christ. So the true and the good Christian apologetics and ethics. But with the beautiful Christian aesthetics, it's been hit and miss. There are times when the church has done well... In leaning into that third transcendental, understanding the beauty that we find in Christ. Other times, the church sort of drifts along with the world, thinking that beauty is just mere adornment. I'm convinced that at our present moment in Western culture, it's an emphasis on the beauty of Christ that is the way forward. We live at a time when... Not always for bad reasons, the wider society is suspicious of a church that makes a claim to ultimate truth and a superior ethic. So that if our presence in society is more or less like we're standing on the street corner going, hey, we got the truth and we know what's good for you. We meet at 10 o'clock on Sundays. (laughs) That may not go over so well. But that leaves that third way, beauty. How can the church in an increasingly secular and post-Christian society still have currency? I think it's if we are enabled to live beautiful lives. If the beauty of Christ becomes expressed in how we live our lives to the extent that people would say, say what you will about those Jesus followers, you have to admit, they live beautiful lives. That's what will give us a hearing again. Beauty, the beauty of Christ. Now, beauty is sometimes an elusive thing. What is beauty, or how do you define it? I mean, there are definitions. You can go to a dictionary and find one. Aristotle gave a somewhat well-known definition of beauty. But my opinion is, when I hear these definitions, I go, yeah, I see what you're saying. I don't disagree. But it doesn't seem like it's really it. Beauty is something that it's hard to define. You might not be able to define it, but dang it, you know it when you see it. And you go, that's beautiful. And that's why I think it's the way forward. Miguel de Cervantes, the author of Don Quixote, said, It is the prerogative and charm of beauty to win hearts. Beauty has a way of sneaking past our defenses. So, when people have strong defenses against Christian apologetics, arguments for the truth, Christian ethics, argument for the, what is good in the light of Christ, that still leaves the opportunity for beauty to win their heart. Beauty can get past that. But we still have to struggle with what is beauty? How do we know if something's beautiful? Well, however we understand beauty, it has to do with form. That's why we, we, we see it's visual, we see it. It has to do with form. Whether it's a song, a sculpture, a painting, a poem. It has to do with form. A song is the artful form of melody. Sculpture, the artful form of stone. Painting, the artful form of color. Poetry, the artful form of language. Now, if we're talking about Christian beauty, if we're talking about how can we, as followers of Christ, enact beautiful lives, what is the form of Christian beauty? Clearly, it is the cruciform. It's this, right? It's not this. It's not this. It's none of that. It's not this. It's this. That's our form. The cruciform. This is all Christian faith. It's right here. This is it. But here's the thing. I mean, you've come in here for four Sundays now and, and seen this artwork. Andre Montaigne, I think he painted this in about fourteen thirty, something like that. And you see that, and I think you recognize that there is beauty in that. It's beautiful. would anybody say, Yeah, I think that's beautiful. Anybody think it's beautiful? And it is. I mean it's why they hang it in the Louvre for crying out loud. They don't, they don't hang your painting in the Louvre because it's ugly. But let's just think about this a minute. It is an artistic depiction of a human being being tortured to death. How does that become beautiful? I mean, I can tell you that the Romans, when they crucified people, weren't trying to produce works of art. They were, in fact, intentionally trying to horrify people, shock them. They wanted to produce something so abhorrent, so ugly, that it would psychologically terrorize you so that you would never think about rebelling against the empire. That's what they're up to. And so there was a time in my life when I would protest against artistic, beautiful depictions of Christ crucified because I would say... That's not what it was like. It wasn't like that. Which is true insofar as it goes. If we had a journalistic photograph of Golgotha on Good Friday, if cameras had been around in the first century and some journalist from the Jerusalem Post had gone out there and taken a picture of it, and we had it, you might look at it once Be absolutely repulsed by it. Regret that you'd looked at it and never look at it again. That's true. And yet we have Mantegna producing this. Or we have, um, a few years ago, Per and I were in Florence and we went to the San Marco Monastery where there's all of these, there's all of these, I mean, there was just this humble monk, Fra Angelico. And just everywhere in this sprawling monastery, just everywhere, in the cells or in their chapels or even in there they, where they had their meals. He just covered the walls with these frescoes. This is a fresco that's just, that's my own picture. And it's just above a doorway that goes into one of the dining halls. But it's beautiful. But is that appropriate? Because we look at, we say, that's beautiful. But, but it wasn't beautiful, was it? Or the San Damiano crucifix in Assisi. This is um, this is what a young Francis of Assisi was looking at and meditating on when Christ spoke to him and said, "Francis, you see, my church is falling into ruins. Rebuild it." And it launched his whole life and his whole ministry. Well, and in this this depiction of Christ crucified, this Byzantine crucifix, you don't even see any agony in Christ. Very serene. So is that a mistake? No, it's not a mistake. You see, the role of the artist and the role of the journalist are not the same. The role of the journalist is simply to give us the facts. Here's the news, here's what's happened. The role of the artist is to alert us to that which we may overlook. The artist says, wake up, pay attention, because you're missing it. So maybe my favorite painter is Vincent van Gogh. Probably his famous painting is Starry Night. Seen that in the Musee d'Orsay in, in Paris. You like that painting? I like that painting, it's beautiful. Now, is that what a starry night looks like? If you walk outside on a clear, moonless night and you see the stars, is that what it looks like? Uh, no. Except, yes. No. But yeah, see, what, what Van, Van Gogh isn't just trying to journalistically reproduce the night sky. He's trying to say to you, wake up, you're surrounded by beauty. It's all around you. It's happening all the time. Don't, go th- don't sleepwalk through life. Wake up. Because what, what Van Gogh has put on the canvas is what should happen in our, sto- in our soul when we behold the majesty and the grandeur and the beauty of a starry night. We should feel that in our soul. Okay. It's one thing, though, to say a starry night, which indeed is beautiful, should be seen as such. It's another thing... For Christian artists to take the torture and execution of an innocent man through violent means of crucifixion and turn it into beauty, but that just highlights the triumph of Christ—that that which is ostensibly the most hideous, repub- ugliest thing that human beings can produce. I mean, what what could be worse than? torturing someone to death by nailing them to a tree. And yet it becomes beautiful because the fact of the matter remains that on Good Friday, yes, human violence and human sin and human ugliness are present, but so is divine love and divine beauty because it's there that Christ absorbs it all and says, I forgive It's where all of the sin and all of the violence and all of the ugliness of the world is sinned into Christ. And he says, I forgive it all. The cross is where human sin and ugliness encounter divine love and beauty. But it's not a fair match. In the end, God's love and beauty win. This is the beauty that will save the world. This is beauty. Without the eye of faith, it's ugly. But once we believe that this one is God, who bears the sin of the world, is buried in a tomb, and on the third day is raised and comes forth speaking the first word of the new world, peace be with you, then it all becomes beautiful. All right, so I've been speaking in large, largely abstract terms this morning about how beauty can inform Christian theology. So let me just really bring it down to a very individual personal story. It happened in Paris on October 9th, 2004. It was the day that Jacques Derrida died. Jacques Derrida is a very famous, well-known French philosopher. Uh, Philosophers in America are just assiduously overlooked. Nobody cares. France still has enough respect for public intellectuals that the death of Jacques Derrida was big news. Derrida's the founder of deconstruction theory. That you can always deconstruct the text. That words are just signs pointing to signs pointed to signs and you can, just, you can infinitely deconstruct. He was brilliant. I don't always agree with him. I think words are more than just signs. I think words actually do mean something. Nevertheless, I was in Paris on the day that Jacques Derrida died. I was there because I was preaching in a very large church near Saint-Denis in Paris. Charisma International, that's the name of it. Portuguese pastor. What was his name, Perry? I've forgotten his name. Pedro, maybe. (laughs) I don't remember. Very intense guy. And um, I was preaching the weekend services. And then... Teaching in their Bible school during the day, and I had the evenings free. Nuno Pedro, that's his name. Nuno Pedro. (laughs) And earlier in the week, I had seen, I'd visited Notre Dame because I just love that 800 year old cathedral. Whenever I go to Paris, that's where I want to go, because I want to go to Notre Dame and I had noticed that there was going to be an English-language multimedia presentation on the history of the cathedral on this whatever it was, Tuesday night. I said, oh, I want to go to that. And so the time rolled around, and I took the train, because I was way up in the north, and I took it into the city center, but I arrived earlier, had some time on my hand, so, you know, I, I, I just went over to the very famous English-speaking bookstore just across the center, just right across the river, left bank of Paris. Uh, Shakespeare and Company. This is a storied bookstore. They have, uh, I mean, this is, this is where Ernest Hemingway and Ezra Pound and E.E. E. Cummings and, I don't know, all these others. Uh, James Joyce, this is where they all hung out in Paris. Some of them lived there. And so I went and I thought, well, I'll pick up some reading material because I'm going to have about an hour to read. So I, um, I was browsing in the Russian section, the Russian masters, Chekhov and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. I said, oh, here's what I want. And I bought a copy of The Idiot, which was an extravagant purchase. It cost 12 euros, paperback copy of The Idiot. It was extravagant because I already had a copy. I already had this one—a nice hardback, Everyman Library, nice little ribbon in it, and all that. I already had that in my hotel room. (laughs) Yeah, this is extravagance. But well, you know, I've got an hour, so I'm spending 12 euros to knock out an hour of the idiot. So now I have a nice one and a paperback one on a trip to Paris. (laughs) Seems ridiculous. Well, I I, I purchased it, and the the idiot and I—we went over to Notre Dame. And I saw the presentation. It was mostly just about the construction of the cathedral, which I found utterly fascinating. But it began with talking about how Christianity came to Gaul and around the year 270 by St. Denis or Saint-Denis and how he was martyred and beheaded. And I was moved by, you know, the depth of his devotion it was an hour-long presentation. I sat through it, enjoyed it. But as it concluded, for some reason, I just felt very moved. And I, I bowed my head in that enormous cathedral. There weren't, you know, there weren't very many people there, a handful of English-speaking people. And I prayed this simple prayer. I said, God, use me more in this city. Amen. That's all I prayed. Left the cathedral, the, the idiot and I. And I got on the train to go back to my hotel, sat down and began to read The Idiot. When a stop or two, people are coming and going, I'm not paying attention. A young man got on and sat exactly opposite me, there on the subway, on the metro, and he said, oh, that's an interesting book you're reading there. I said, yeah, The Idiot? Have you read it? He said, I'm reading it right now. I said, well, that's a coincidence. And we struck up a conversation. It was a young man, Asian, his name was Yu, which makes the telling of the story fun. Yu was with me on the train in Paris on the day that Deconstruction died. And we started talking, and we talked a little bit about literature and Dostoevsky and philosophy, and he was aware that Derrida had died that day, and... I said, well, what are you doing here? He said, "Uh, well, I just graduated from university, and I'm backpacking through Europe. I said, oh, man, I admire that. That's awesome. I said, what was your degree? And he said, I I got a double degree. I thought, man, he's a go-getter. I said, okay, what are your two degrees? And he said, I got a degree in political science and world history. And I said, ah, it's a great combination of degrees. Political science, human attempt at self-governance. World history, record of our failures. (laughs) He laughed, you know. He said, yeah, that's pretty much the way it is. So I said, all right, so you're a young man. I don't know where he's from. I never found out where he's from. He spoke very good English with a British accent. I think maybe he's from Singapore, but I don't know. I said, okay, so you're this young man. You've got degrees in political science and world history. You're just sitting out, you know, in adult life. What's your hope for the world? He said, oh, I have no hope for the world. I said no hope that that sounds that's sad maybe a bit cynical and then he said to me I didn't bring it up he said to me you said to me on the train in Paris on the day that deconstruction died I heard that Dostoevsky was a Christian do you know anything about that (laughs) I said as a matter of fact you've come to the right place And I said, yeah, I do. And I told him about how Fyodor Dostoevsky had grown up in a very pious, devout Christian home. But in high school, he drifted into agnosticism, became a convinced, well, if not atheist, certainly an agnostic. Following his school, he's pursuing a writing career, living in St. Petersburg, and he's part of this subversive writers group that's advocating overthrow of the czars, at least maybe a little bit. And they are found out and they are arrested. And they are put in the St. Peter and Paul prison for eight months and then sentenced to execution. He was 27 years old. Remember, I'm telling this to you on the train in Paris. And at the last moment... The emperor, Emperor Nikolai, actually commuted their sentence and said, "No, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to exile them. I'm going to give them four years hard labor in Siberia, which was not fun, and four years exile. But I'm not going to execute them. But don't tell them till the last moment." And so they were taken from the from the prison to the parade ground for their execution. They believe. They go through the whole process. The crimes are read. They're blindfolded. The firing squad is there. The various commands. And at the last moment, it's all staged. A man comes galloping in upon a horse, telling them to halt, that the emperor has commuted their sentence. And suddenly Dostoevsky is giving his life back. He didn't think he thought his life was over. Now it's given back to him. He's put in a sleigh in the winter and taken 2,000 miles to Omsk and as he was entering the prison which he later described as the house of the dead as he entered the prison where he was going to be for four years there was a, there was a lady a wife of, of the warden was giving all the prisoners a new testament And for four years, this very literary man, Fyodor Dostoevsky, the only thing he had to read was the New Testament, and he read it over and over. He mostly read the Gospels, and especially the Gospel of John. And faith returned to him. I'm telling this to you. On the train in Paris on the day Deconstruction died. And I said, now you, after that, you will find the Gospel in all of Dostoevsky's novels, in a very beautiful and artistic form. You said to me, what do you do? (laughs) I said, well, I'm a pastor. So the cat was out of the bag. I'm a pastor. And then he got quiet and he leaned toward me closer and he was almost whispering. He said, all right, since you're a pastor, I'll tell you something. I grew up in the church. I grew up in a Christian home. But when I was in high school, I became an atheist. And I've been an atheist all through high school and all through college. Yesterday, I went to visit Notre Dame. Not to pray, but just to see the beauty of the architecture. But when I walked in, and saw the beauty, I was overwhelmed, and I knew there is a God. And I knew that I'd been wrong. And I tried to pray, but I don't believe God heard my prayer. I said, you, I'm going to stop you right there. (laughs) He absolutely heard your prayer. I just came from there. I just came from there. And I was there, and I prayed this prayer, and I said, God, use me more in this city. And God apparently went, wait a minute. I can answer both prayers at the same time. And so I had to buy this book at Shakespeare and Company Bookstore, this paperback edition of The Idiot, because I already have one in the hotel, but I had to have it so you would see it, and we would talk about Dostoevsky, and we would talk about Jesus, and we would talk about high school kids becoming atheists, and then how they can find their way back home. That's what I told you on the train in Paris on the day that Derrida died. And then he started crying. Tears came to his eyes. I said, would you like to pray? He said, yes. And so we, we prayed together. And when I said amen, I was at my stop. I said, oh, you, I have to go. And I just jumped off, and the train whisked off into the night. And I stood there on that platform, and I thought, whew, I feel like an angel. I feel like, I feel like an angel. I feel like I was sent by God, right place at the right time. People say, did you get his email? I said, angels don't ask for email. That was like, what, 16 years ago. I've told this story over and over, and I never get tired of telling it. Someday I'm going to find out how it all wound up. But I like to imagine that somewhere, maybe in Singapore, he won't be as young now, you He'd be getting into his late 30s, approaching 40 maybe. But I like to think that you out there somewhere. And he tells a story. He says, uh, I was in Paris on the day that Derrida died. and I went to Notre Dame and I saw the beauty and it, woke, it awakened something in me that I thought was lost. And then I got on the train and there was an angel reading The Idiot. And I found my way back home. Here's my sermon. It was beauty that saved you on the day that deconstruction died. Amen. Stand with me. Let's make our prayer of confession together. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. And God is merciful to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Gracious Father, whose blessed Son Jesus Christ came down from heaven to be the true bread which gives life to the world. Evermore, give us this bread that he may live in us and we in him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. And this is the table, not of the church but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.